Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. So let me give you a little bit of background. I was not here last week. Uh, Father Gritter was here last week. But Joshua has is now... Uh, what we're going to read about is actually referred to as the crossing of the Jordan. It's Joshua taking the people of the Israelites, the 12 tribes and all their people, across the Jordan River. Big deal, right? Well, why is the Jordan River? This is actually an extremely important two chapters. It doesn't seem like it would be, but it is, and I'll tell you why. Um, the Jordan River separates uh, everything else. Let me draw another a map here. So here's, anybody here ever been to the Jordan River? I never have. But I hope to be there. I hope in a couple of years to take a mission trip, or not a mission trip, but an excursion over to Israel. It'd be kind of cool. Um, here are, here is the promised land that God promised to his people, right? Way back in, in Exodus. The promised land is a place that, it's, a, it's current, the current nation of Israel, but the promised land was, was land which God had promised to the Israelites they could go settle in once they were liberated from, from the Egyptians. And so the promised land is over here, okay? And on this side of the promised land is the, is whatever, is the Jordan River. On the side of the, it doesn't matter where, but on the, the barrier of the perimeter of the promised land is bordered by the Jordan River. The Jordan River, to cross it, you have to cross the, the Jordan River to get into the promised land. Does that make sense? And so when they, and, and this is actually extremely important because we see later when Jesus, and we'll get to this in a minute, when Jesus comes to earth to start his ministry to lead us into the promised land, so to speak, in a metaphysical sense, the first thing he does is he's baptized in the river Jordan, the very same one, right? And he comes up out, which we're going to see in a moment. There's a parallel there. So, um, to Bob's point, the promised land, okay, here. And then the, we, the Israelites are going to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. Make sense? Okay, so the Jordan River is, the crossing of the Jordan is symbolic of them going into the, the land that God had promised them. It's not just crossing a river. It's actually about going into what God has prepared you for. Is that clear? All right, let's go ahead and read it. So um, we're just going to go through the first six verses here. Uh, so um, after last week with Father Gritter, he cued you all in on how Joshua became uh, the leader after Moses is dead. And now Joshua, who's a military leader, starts the conquest of the promised land. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. That's the Lord's command to Joshua. Um, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. 
And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So um, let me just make a couple of observations. The, um, what's actually beginning to unfold here is the conquest of the, of, of the Promised Land. The Promised Land, people actually live there. Right? So it's not like they're walking into, you know, the, the plains of, of the American, because people live there too, I guess, the American West. It's not like they're walking into Florida back in 1860 where nobody lived but some Indians. This is, people actually live in the Promised Land because it's very fertile property and it's prime real estate. And so when they go into the land of the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all that, those are different people groups that live in this land that, that uh, Joshua has been commanded to take. And so, um, and, let, and let me show you something here too. There's a little bit of symbolism in verse two. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. Notice something here, which is a subtle point, but it's, I guess, sort of important, that when they go to conquer the promised land, they don't, they don't sneak attack. Right? In other words, if you're going to go into an, if you're going to go and invade and invade foreign land, right? What do you do? You uh, you create a diversion somewhere, like when the Allies invaded Europe, you create a, a diversion and then you invade, right? You go. In other words, you want to keep your enemy off balance. The last thing you do is camp right across from where you're going and light campfires and spend a few days there. Why? Because then everybody knows you're coming. See my point? But that's actually a very important detail. It's really, really subtle, but it's important. And the reason is because, the, why, would, why would Joshua and the army of Israel just camp there and not sweat, sneaking up on the Canaanites? Why would they, why would they be so uh, militarily foolish? What do you think? Right, because God, because, yes, Sarah says, because God will take care of them. So, again, there's little nuggets in here that seem, they're actually kind of not all that important, except that it shows that Joshua, even in his leadership, uh, is always dependent upon God and making sure that, that this is not by human means. Does that make sense? Really important. So, the last thing you do is camp out and light campfires and for three days before you go across. Unless, of course, you're really not that worried about the enemy seeing you coming. Make sense? Okay, so let's move on. The officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Um, let, let me talk about that for a second. The, the Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark of the Covenant? Anybody know? What's in it? The Torah is in there. There's a couple things in there. The Ark of the Covenant is carried by... Uh, men from uh, priests from the tribe of Levi. Remember, Levi is one of Joseph's sons. Isaac, Jacob, right, Jake, right, I'm all confused now. Yeah, and uh, so um, Levi, all the, the Levites are the, are the group from which the priests are picked. They carry this uh, ark on a set of poles. And in the ark, which we talked about before, there's a couple things. There's the Torah, there's the Ten Commandments, right? The, the tablets with the Ten Commandments. But there's some other stuff in there, too. Anybody know? Rory, does Rory know? What you got? The Ten Commandments are in there, right? The Ten, the stones. You know, why is that important? The Ten Commandments are symbolic of God's covenant, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is in there. Anybody know? Uh, manna is in there. Yep. So manna is the bread from heaven, which is what God, which is what God provided when they were wandering around for 40 years in the desert. 
And there's something else in there. Aaron's rod, Aaron's staff, symbolizing God's provision. So there's all this stuff in this box that symbolizes and actually affects God's provision. It's not just... um, it's not just a picture or a symbol or a representation. God is actually somehow, oh, this gets really tricky, but in a supernatural way, God is present in that ark. Does that make sense? Which is why they say, when it comes out and you see it going, stay away from it. Don't go anywhere near it because God's presence is, is in, that, in, in the ark. And if you go near it and if you touch it, it'll kill you. So that's why when, they, when, when, when jo, uh, Joshua says, we're going to go into the promised land, and what we're going to do is we're going to sneak attack, and we're going to send scouts and cavalry ahead. No, that's not what they do at all. He says, here's the Jordan River. We're going to camp here for a few days, and then we're going to send the priests across carrying on poles this, ba- this container with the container in the middle of it, cross the river, and you all are going to follow, but way back here. Does that make sense? So this is not an army in any conventional sense of the word. This is not, I mean, any other military commander would never do this, right? The only reason that Joshua does it is because Joshua trusts in the Lord. Crucially important. It's actually, it's actually why God picked him in the first place. Did you guys talk about that last time, Abraham's or Moses' failure and, and Joshua's success, that why Joshua was picked. If, if you think back to, I, I didn't look at, he's not here, right? I didn't look at his, uh, his video from last week, Father Gritters. But Joshua, let's talk about him for a second. Joshua and Caleb, remember way back when uh, God had said to invade the promised land, and they went and they scouted out the, the area for, to see if anybody was there. And people came back and said, oh my gosh, there's all these people there, we can never beat it. Two men say, everybody says that, except for two men. Anybody remember? Joshua and Caleb. They say, the Lord's behind us, let's go. And everybody says, we can't do it. Let's go. We can't do it. So what does God do? He sends them out in the desert for how long? 40 years. Anybody know why? Anybody want know, know why 40? It's a generation. So what he does is those people who were basically on faithful and not trusting of God, God says, okay, I'm going to put you out in the desert and you're going to wander around for 40 years until all those people who didn't have the guts to go across are dead or basically not of military age anymore. So basically what God does is raise up a new army. Does that make sense? And then he says, let's try it again. Joshua says, okay, we're going to do this again and we're going to do it my way. We're going to camp on the side of the river. We're going to let the Canaanites see we're coming and we're not even going to put the army in the front. The army is going to go behind. And they go. Why do they go? Because God had to get rid of that first generation of people to bring out, raise up a new army. This is what the book of Numbers is all about. Raising a military army. Numbers. Is that clear? So um, anyway, there's a lot to this. And the, I guess the, the basic point of all of it is that God, uh, you know, even, even when people are not faithful, God doesn't give up on us. He might, he might uh, cause a little bit of <laughs> trouble for us. He might hesitate. And he might say, well, maybe you need to grow up a little bit, boys and girls. But he won't. But doesn't ever, he doesn't ever cast us aside. And that's why Joshua is the leader of all of this, because he is the one, he and Caleb were the only two for the original uh, assault that stayed faithful. Is that clear? That's why Joshua is a big deal. That's why, he, not that Joshua, the Joshua of the Bible. Anyway, let's move on. So um, 
Yet there shall be a distance between you, verse 4, about 2,000 cubits in length, which is about, uh, I think it's about 1,000 feet. Is that right? I remember, I had it somewhere. Um, and and uh, Joshua said to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people, verse 6. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Something which I find fascinating by this, about this, let me stop there. The Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's presence, right? And it's actually the, what, when they go to conquer Jericho, which is the next step, that's what actually does it, the Ark, okay? The Ark of the Covenant is it, so the people are following this Ark. God gives them something physical that, rep, that actually manifests his power, and, it's, and they follow that thing. It is both a comfort to see God there, right? But it's also terrifying. Um, people, people like the comfort God, <laughs> right? That's easy. You know, shine, Jesus, shine, and all that. Okay, fine. But, but what about the God who actually says, don't come too close for your own sake? Uh, I'm going to draw a parallel here, which is not in Joshua, but it is, I think, makes theological merit. Can anybody think of something in our own life as Christians in, wherein God is present in a supernatural, spiritual, holy way? In the Eucharist, right? Uh, where, uh, which is why God said, which is actually why only a baptized Christian is permitted to receive communion. Why? It's not because we're excluding people. It's because a baptized Christian is somebody whose sins have been taken by the Lord, right? So that's what makes you good enough. It's not that you're a nice person or that we're trying to be inclusive and welcoming. No. The reason that the Eucharist is restricted to people that are baptized is because baptism is what removes the stain of original sin and allows the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Is that clear? So it's actually God is pro provides a way for us to not only, I mean, and you want to say touch the ark, right? The Eucharist, which is Jesus's body and blood in some supernatural, spiritual, but real way, uh, we are invited into that same thing. And I, anybody have any comments about that? I, I find that to be absolutely astounding. I don't know about you, but when I, I have a very strong devotion to the Eucharist because of that very thing. God is a God who is present with his people in supernatural but real ways. And there are physical things like water and baptism, bread and wine in the Eucharist, uh, a box with laws and staffs and things in it that actually God actually dwells within. What do you think of that? I think it's astounding. Too casual about the Eucharist? Too casual, too casual about what it is. Yeah, that's a good, Bill makes a good, a good point, and you know, I think it's universally true. I mean, we all, I think, if we're not careful, fall into you sort of seeing it as this sort of commonplace, the Eucharist, you know, and maybe not taking it as, with as much seriousness and reverence as we do. But you know, quite frankly, if you, if you were ever actually really aware of what you were doing, could you imagine, I mean, could you even do it? That's right, that's right. I, I was, I think I've shared this with you before. At one point when I was, in, before I was ordained, I was probably 21 or 20 years old, right in there. And I, I went to the rail once, and I wasn't in any particular state of any, I wasn't doing anything particularly wrong, as I recall, but uh, I remember going to the rail, going to the altar rail once, I knelt down, and the priest went to give me the host and put it on my tongue, which is how you prefer to receive it, usually typically, and I could feel my entire body recoil from it. It was the weirdest thing, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could feel sort of two different things, almost like I could feel my, my sinfulness in my body going, and then, but then also feeling like God pushing me forward into it. It was, just, it was a really profound 
thing. In other words, my own recognition of my own brokenness and fallenness and insufficiency, but God saying, no. That was just a, just one, no, uh, the question was, is that when I decided to go to seminary? No, but uh, it was just a part of my spiritual journey where the Lord really made that clear to me. It was very profound and terrifying, I might add. So anyway, let's go on. So, Verse 7, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that you may know that as I was with Moses, so I am with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, how shall you, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hivites, the uh, Hittites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Those are people that live in the Promised Land. Um, Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Let me show you a couple of things. There's a, two things going on here. The first thing is, um, look at verse 7. The, t- the Lord says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, just like I did with Moses. Why would God say, I'm going to exalt Joshua? Why would he do that, you think? So he can what? So he can lead, right? So Joshua is still, people are still kind of thinking about Moses, right? Because Moses led them forever. God is actually giving an opportunity for Joshua to be seen as the leader. One of the things which makes Joshua such an important example for Christian leadership, whether you're a priest or a businessman or a retiree, it doesn't matter what you're doing. As a Christian leader, one of the things which makes Joshua so profound as an example and illustration is that even though God puts him in a position of leadership, Joshua never forgets who's actually in charge. Does that make sense? I have seen uh, so many people, clergy and non-clergy, just plain old Christian, I should say plain old, but lay people who are Christians and put in positions of leadership and influence, and God puts before them something to lead, right, and be an example, the minute you start believing it's because of your own, you're, you're done. The minute you believe that, your own press, you're toast. I've seen that. I, 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 will, I will confess to you, my, my, my people, that it's one of the things which I keep in check in my own heart. Thankfully, I'm not really prone to that to begin with, because I don't take myself that seriously. Uh, I take what I do seriously, but not myself that seriously. But it is important to remember when God calls you to a position of leadership, as a priest or as a layperson, it doesn't matter, to always remember that, that he's the one who's going to provide the strength to do it. Does that make sense? So important. And, and the reason, so God says to Joshua, today I'll begin to exalt you. Joshua, I'm going to use you as an example to lead my people. And then Joshua says, Look at verse 10. Here is how you shall know the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out the Canaanites. See, Joshua has no illusion that he's the one doing the work. That's what makes him a great leader. It's not that he's a charismatic figure who's a great speaker and a great preacher. No, it's he's obedient. And he says, and this is how you will know. Behold, verse 11, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Let me just point something out to you. Look at closely at verse 11. That word behold there is an important word. It's, an, it's a, uh, mod, it's a um, intensive. It means pay attention to this. This is really, really important. And he says here, 
Some of your translations probably don't have behold in verse 11. It, it can be left out, but I think it's important to maintain it. Look at what he says here. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Not the ark of the covenant of the Israelites. The Lord of everything. There's a couple different things going on here. There, this is God going out to conquer the Canaanites on behalf of his people. But it's also the exact same thing as the Israelites leaving Egypt. Remember when the whole point of the Exodus was for God to show that he is the God in control of everything? He's not just the God of the Israelites. He is God, period. That's exactly what this is saying here. And this is why Joshua is a great leader. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing on before you. And when the, verse 13, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? <laughs> what do we see here? Do we see God leading his people through water again as a symbol of deliverance and redemption? You guys see it? It was the, uh, it was, um, the Red Sea. In the, uh, this, anybody here last weekend for 10 o'clock mass, I baptized uh, three children. Caleb was one of them. It was a wonderful day, actually. And the, the liturgy, uh, the baptismal liturgy in the prayer book says, uh, we thank you, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here because I don't have it in front of me, but when the priest blesses the water, he says, we thank you, Lord, for the gift of water. Through it, you led the people of Israel out of bondage into slavery, out of slavery into freedom. Um, in it, your son was baptized. In other words, water is symbolic of some, water is actually symbolic of everything that's wrong with the world. And when God uses it to, to free his people, what he's saying is everything that's wrong with the world, I'm going to fix it. I told you before, right, that the Israelites, the Jews were never seafaring people, right? Did I tell you that before? Okay, that's really important. Uh, water, uh, water in the Old Testament is a symbol of chaos and uh, I mean, it's a symbol of life. People drink it and things. But water is symbolic of chaos and disorder and everything that is scary and wrong with the world, water kind of symbolizes. Kind of like darkness would symbolize it for us, okay? Um, and in fact, darkness and water, those two combined, are the sort of the emblem of what makes everything wrong with the world in the Jewish mind. For example, remember back to Genesis chapter 1, when the earth is formless and void? What, what's going on? Dark covers the face of the deep, the waters. So when God uses water to free his people, what he's saying is everything that you're afraid of, everything wrong with the world, I'm going to save you from it and actually save you through it. Make sense? In, um, you know, in baptism, I've never actually done one of these. Anybody here ever been to a full immersion baptism? Right? So they're, they're, the, the prayer book actually recommends it. I've just never done one. But it's actually normative to do a full immersion baptism. The reason is, when you do a full immersion baptism, you've seen it done, right? You've got a, you're out in the water, or Father Gritter baptized a kid two years ago in the ocean, which is perfectly acceptable. The person takes, you take the person, you dunk them into the water all the way under, right? And then you pull them up. Symbolize of being dead in water and chaos and sin and brokenness and being lifted up by Jesus. That's the symbolism of it. So water, it plays a recurring theme in Scripture in terms of God using it as a symbol of, of the Lord freeing his people from bondage. Make sense? Okay, all right. Um, then the waters, 
Uh, so when the people, verse 14, so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark, ark were dipped in the brink of its water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose in a heap very far away, same language as in, in uh, Red Sea, at Hadam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those flowing towards the Sea of Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. The priests go and they stand, they touch the water of the river, Jordan River, which at this point is um, overflowing. It's, I think, 30 or 40 feet wide and deep and fast. The, the Jordan River can be a trickle, right, in some parts. It can be very narrow. It can be very wide certain times of the year. This time of the year, it's very wide. And the water is stopped and the priests step into the river, which, of course, is a symbol of God using his power to conquer everything wrong with the world, water. They stand in the middle of the river and the people walk through. And not, not, they don't just stand in the mud. What do they stand on? Dry, Dry ground. Any observations about that? Yep. Uh, um, it seems to me like three days before they crossed the Jordan was um, a lot of people probably did a lot of prayer time and got right sort of with themselves. Of course. Yeah. And then the crossing of the water was maybe sort of a cleanse, cleansing like we do with baptism. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I just wish I had not, I read further on and found out the dry land bit. That way we couldn't get everybody wet. Joshua says Joshua told the people to consecrate themselves before they went, which means prayer and um, no sexual activity, frankly, is what it means. So you abstain and you pray. So three days is about the extent of that, I think. But uh, that's what they do. And then they stand on dry, dry ground. The priests are in the middle of the river. And then everybody comes along a thousand feet away. They come along behind and or probably next to and go through the river Jordan up into Jericho. And did you notice something interesting? It says here, um, where is it? And, okay, verse 15. And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan... Um, wait a minute, where did I see it? Oh, here it is, uh, verse uh, 16, at the end of it. At the, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. So in case, the, in case sitting for three days on this side of the river didn't make it obvious, they cross over right in front of Jericho, and that's where they camp. Jericho is the first target on the, uh, on the, on the conquest which is, of course, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, which is about what we're going to cover next week. Okay, I'll read what I have. Uh, I'll read here uh, verse 17 in the ESV. Now the priests, bearing the ark of, of the covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. That's what I have. I don't think so. Do they? 
I thought there was a group of people that were going to stay. Yeah, there was a group of people. That might, that, that, I don't, yeah. The, well, it says here that all, that might have been, there are, some, there, are um, there are people that are with the Israelites that are traveling with them. It might be them. I don't know. I have to go back and look at it again. And Josh was just talking about because they thought they found really great land for all their sheep and so forth, and they decided that there wasn't anything better, and then we get, now they're moving forward. Right, and, they stay, and they stayed back? Yeah, I don't know. I have to go back and look at that. I'm not aware of that, but that's actually not. Yeah. Well, so yeah. So I, the ha- the one thing about the half tribe that's that's a kind of I kind of zoned in on that because it could be that those are the ones that stay. They're not full Israelites, right? So that I'd have to go back and dig into this, but it might be that they stayed behind. Well, that could be. I hadn't thought about. Yeah, that could be that women stayed behind. But in any event, yeah. I don't. I don't. So verse 4, chapter 4, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, this is why I have to go back and look at this, all the nation. I mean, it's very emphatic that all the Israelites go. So it's a minor point, but we can go back and look at that later. Um, The Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from this very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. Joshua is always obedient. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. Why? That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what did these stones mean to you? Remember back when we talked about the Passover? And, and it was emphatic. You will teach your children this is what this means when you keep the Passover. This is another example of that. God saying, I'm going to, you're going to do this. And you're not just doing it for the sake of piling rocks on top of each other. You're doing this as a memorial to, to teach future generations about what happened, what's going to happen here. Um, can anybody think of some, a, a parallel in the, in the Christian church? I mean, there's lots of examples, but something where, I mean, does, does God use symbolism in Christianity? Of course. Right? The cross, stained glass, vestments, all these things which are symbols, which we, a, a lot of, what's that? Incense. incense. Yeah, Marty, which she, Marty loves the incense, right? You're patient and kind. The, uh, there's all sorts of things which God uses as ways to help us remember Things which had gone before. It's so important. A lot of times people, particularly contemporary non-denominational evangelicals, want to dismiss all symbols, right? You know, you go to churches and it's basically, you know, you bring your Starbucks, you sit in a, sit in a recliner and you watch a screen with a band. That's just not really how this works. <laughs> you know, there's, there's something to be said for having old, I shouldn't say old, ancient symbols of things to remind us of where we come from. People want to dismiss that as being, oh, it's just, um, uh, what's that? Rich. 
just ritual or it's just, and it can be, it can be empty, but it's typically not. One of the reasons I like to do the, um, the um, uh, liturgical minute on Sunday mornings, I don't always remember to do it, but one of the reasons I like to explain the symbols of the Eucharist and architecture, church architecture, is to, is to show that these things really mean something. Everything, everything means something. And the reason that's important is it allows you to grab onto something a little bit older and a little bit bigger than you are and to be reminded of, of how God worked in past generations. Whenever you, and, and actually, you know, it's a pastoral thing. Whenever you're, whenever you're dealing with something in your life or someone in your life of somebody you love and you're wrestling and you're struggling with something, you know, something, somebody gets sick or somebody dies or whatever, the way you take comfort in and being reminded about how God works is you think back to how he worked in the past, right? Right? You know, when you're in the middle of a, when you're in the middle of a, of a tragedy or a spin or a brokenness, immediately you're going to be fearful and you're going to be scared and you're going to spin. We all do it. It's human nature. The way you counsel somebody out of that, the way you counsel yourself out of that, the way that Scripture counsels you out of that is remember what God did before. Remember, remember what he did before. He hasn't changed. I know you're scared. I know you're, you're worried. Things are falling apart, granted. But remember that God is faithful and remember that he's, what he's done before. Like that pile of 12 stones isn't just a pile of 12 stones on the side of the, of, of the river beside Jericho. It's a reminder of the mighty works that God did because quite frankly, human beings are short-sighted particularly when we're scared. Amen? Amen? So it's just true. And I, and I think it's so important. For, I, one of the reasons I hammer you guys, I shouldn't say hammer, that I, am in, that I repeatedly bring up 1 Peter chapter 3, 15. I bring this up a lot. And I'll commend it to you again in case you're not familiar with it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Always be prepared to offer a testimony for the hope that is in you. And what that means is always know your story. Like, think back to how God got you where you are now. Seriously, like, be intentional about that. Always be prepared to offer testimony for the hope that's in you. Know your story for your own sake, so that you can rest in God's provision for you, but also for the sake of being able to help other people when they're struggling. Is that clear? The 12 stones are not, 12 stones, big deal, 12 pieces of rock. They're symbolic of God's provision. Bill. You go to a, a Jewish cemetery, and you'll, you'll, you'll find uh, on headstones little stones on top. Mm -hmm. People who have visited there have placed a stone. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, you put a, uh, put a, I saw that actually at that, with that synagogue shooting, I saw that, and I just assumed that's had to tie into this. And then, and look at what it says. Why do you do this? Why do you put these piles of stones in there? When your children ask you in time to come, what do these stones mean, Dad? Then you shall, Mom, then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. It's repeated, is it, for an emphatic and Jewish idea? That's why they repeat things all the time. It's an emphasis. So the, stone, so the stone shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel, verse 8, did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, 
just as the Lord told Joshua. They're being obedient. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there, which is right by Jericho. They build a symbol of God's provision right, before, right in front of the place they're about to invade. And Joshua set up 12 stones. This is interesting here, this verse 9. Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. Uh, by way of reminder, when you read these things, and it sounds like, like in, in the West you kind of write in a linear fashion, right? In ancient Jewish writing, it kind of goes like, it kind of goes like, it's kind of like this, and it kind of goes like this, and then loops around the thought, right? Did you ever notice that? Like it repeats itself? That's intentional. It's not because there's several authors putting this together, and it's all been stitched together by, by groups of authors, by some kind of an editor, which is one of the theories of scripture. It's because that's how, that's how ancient people wrote. They wrote in a manner of, in a linear way, and they would repeat and say it again. You know, Moses crossed the Jordan with the 12, or Joshua crossed the Jordan with 12 stones, and the 12 stones Joshua carried across. Stuff like that. And it's meant just to be a way to emphasize an important point. It sounds clunky in English, admittedly. It sounds clunky in Western thought, admittedly, but it's perfectly normal in ancient Jewish text. Bill, you had a question? Right. So let me go through that. Verse 12. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel. So they went across, and then those people went after, I presume. Um, passed over where are we here? Passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. Verse 13, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho outside the city. On that day, the Lord... I'll get to that in a second. So 40,000 um, 40, men cross the river. What you're actually... What you're, just in case this point has been missed, the crossing of the Jordan River is God providing for his people, keeping his promise to give them the promised land. It's also, frankly, an invasion. It is a, a group of military, it's an army crossing the river to conquer. And then, um, uh, and then verse 14 uh, is actually Father Gritter's tagline on his email. I pointed this out to him when it, and we had a huge laugh over this one. And he actually took my advice. So if you get an email from him, you'll see Joshua 4.14, which reads, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Yeah. I just changed it to Father Christmas. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, yes. um, incidentally, do you see parallels between crossing the Jordan and conquering the promised land, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, and then they go forth, right, into evangelizing. Jesus starts his ministry by being baptized in the Jordan River, same river, Right, coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, just like here, and then he goes out. The name, in case you don't know this, the name Joshua and the name Jesus are the same name. Okay, so whenever, so don't miss that because if you're an ancient, if you're a first-century Jew, it would have been obvious. Uh, when you see Jesus coming out of the Jordan River and then going out and evangelizing, conquering for the name of in the name of God by preaching the gospel. 
they would have all gotten the connection. Holy smokes, this guy named Joshua? Just like Joshua from, from our you know, ancestors? Make sense? And he's got 12 apostles, just like the 12 tribes of Israel? And there's a lot of parallel there. And it's, it's intentional. Okay? And, and incidentally, if you don't know this, the name Joshua, uh, Hebrew, the word is, I mean, in Greek, it's Jesus. In Hebrew, it's, or in English, it's Joshua. In Hebrew, it is Yeshua. It's all the same name. And the name means, anybody know what the name Joshua means? Well, Jesus means God saves. God saves. Yep. So the Jesus, Yahshua, Jeshua, it's all the same name, means God saves. Pretty cool. Um, verse 15, And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. He ex- always does what a leader does in a Christian context. He's obedient. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground. The water of the Jordan, waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all the banks as before. In case you were under any illusion that this was just a natural occurrence, it wasn't, is the, is the point there. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east, east border of Jericho. The uh, interesting thing, which you probably don't know, is the, where it says here they came up on the 10th day of the first month, that actually coincides with the same date as the Passover. Yeah. Um, so, again, don't miss the parallel, right? And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask, where do I go here? When, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan, over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. See? Drawing a parallel, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that, why did, Jesus, why did God do all that? Well, so that all the peoples of the earth, not just the Jews, all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That is why God has us, you have to be able to tell your story. Because it shows that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you, fear the, that you, can, you may fear the Lord your God forever. What do you think of that? Did I give you too much today? Overlooked also. You want to talk about the fear of the Lord for a minute? Um, what does it mean to say fear of the Lord? What does it mean? Reverential awe. Reverential awe. What does that mean, though? I mean, reverential. Does that mean? Right. You're reverent to God. Right. Humble, Humble before God. Um, what else does it mean? Yep. You're right, Marty. Don't mess with them. Don't mess with them. <laughs> you, you know what? You remember when uh, when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mount, and he is transfigured before them, and they kind of see through the veil into what his true nature is, what do they do? Do they go, hey, it's Jesus. They, they cower. They, they sh- and they say, let us, Peter says, let us build three booths. Why does he do that? Because I need some shelter. <laughs> right? In other, words, they, in other words, fear of the Lord does mean reverential awe, but it, what it really means is when you're confronted with the God of the Bible, it's like, it, it's blows you away. And it's a, it's a, it is a, a supernatural 
all-encompassing, terrifying, awe-inspiring thing. And I think a lot of times, to Bill's point, I think, Bill, if you were driving at this, um, modern Christianity misses that point. Do you think so? And that's too bad. One of the reasons why I'm a high churchman is because I believe in the fear of the Lord. I believe God loves me and cares for me, and I'm not afraid he's going to hurt me, uh, but I, am, I do fear him in the sense of just profound uh, <laughs> awe and amazement at who he is. It is. The, fear, the scripture says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, what does that mean? Well, that's a good, let me explain that, that. I just preached on this not too long ago. Uh, the fear of the Lord. Okay, so when you, if you, um, let me talk about that for a second. Say you're, say you're walking the dogs tonight, right? And it's kind of getting dark out and you're walking along and maybe you're talking on the phone or you're just kind of enjoying the evening and you're walking your dog and it's a small dog. And out of the corner of your eye, you see a Rottweiler, a, a, a pit bull, coming at you, growling. Rah! What are you gonna? How is your? What's your response gonna be to that? That that? Sick him. <laughs> go get him, Snippy. Are you gonna look at that dog and go, "Hey, puppy, puppy"? What's your reaction gonna be to that dog? You're gonna be afraid, right? You're going to experience fear if that dog comes running at you and it's ready to attack you and your little puppy or your dog. Maybe, maybe you're not walking a dog at all. You're just walking, and the dog comes running at you from, from off its leash, and it's unattended, and you're going you're gonna to be afraid of that dog. Why? It can hurt you, right? What, so say you're on, talking on the phone, and maybe you're thinking about a million different things in your life, and you're kind of thinking about what's for dinner, and, man, I can't believe my friend said that to me today on the golf course, and this dog comes running at you. Where is all your focus going to go? To that dog. Why? Because you fear it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because the very same dynamic. That dog, when it comes running at you, is going to consume your entire focus. That is going to be, responding to that dog is you're going to be your number one priority, right? Make sense? The reason the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is because when you put God at the top, when he is the center of your focus, that gives you wisdom. Is that clear? It's actually, it sounds... I mean, in other words, the, the idea of fear in that context is not fearing God of being, he's going to, you know, send you to hell or something, but rather putting God in his proper place, which is front and center. And with, I just preached a sermon on this a couple weeks ago, if you want to go dig through the archives on the website, but the fear of the, of the Lord means that you put him in spot number one, right? And we all, all of us sometimes put him down to, Two, three, four, and five, right? We do it. We are all human and we, make, and we forget that God needs to be the priority. But if you want to be wise, and wisdom means you want to make good, holy, right decisions, start with him at the top. That's what that means. Wisdom means the ability to discern truth from error, right from wrong. The ability to make a good decision. And the, what scripture says is the fear of the Lord, putting him first, is the beginning. It's where wisdom begins. Does that make sense? So when you decide, well, yeah. Anyway, and if you think of a practical matter, say you want to say, well, what do I, what do, I do about my kid wants to do X, Y, Z? Uh, okay, let me give you a concrete one. My, uh, say your child says, well, I'm going to go cohabitate with my girlfriend, dad, before we're married, right? And you say, I love my kid, but what, how are you going to respond to that question? 
How do you make a right discernment? Now, what the kid will do what he's going to do. I'm not saying it's your responsibility to change the child. I'm saying as a matter of how you counsel that child in response to that desire, what you have to do is go back to what does God say, right? And that's, this is what I do all in my pastoral ministry and in everything. I would say, well, you want to go cohabitate with your girlfriend? Okay, fine. The scripture says that's not what you do. And here's why it says that. Well, Dad, that's old-fashioned, and no, 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 we love each other. Okay, fine. They're going to do what they're going to do. It's not your responsibility to make them do what they should, what they, the right thing. But if you want to know how, what to say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what the right decision would be. Does that make sense? And that can be with anything, anything at all. If you put God's word at the top and make your decisions based upon that, that is where wisdom comes from. Good question, Sharon. Good question. So, anybody? Yes. Yeah, in a sense it is, but, it, but it's also a sense of, uh, fear of the Lord just means that God is your, think of the illustration of something, of that dog coming at you. All of your focus goes on that dog, right? Everything in your life, all the little things you worry about all day long, and the, your recipes that you're going to have for dinner, and what you're going to do for your golf game tomorrow, and what's on TV for tonight, all that's going to go away because that dog's coming at you. It, it consumes your focus. The fear of the Lord means you, that he consumes your focus. I was jogging from Severna Park up toward the Baltimore Airport, and two pit bulls attacked me. Oh. Yes. The one was hanging on my leg, and the other one came, I kicked it in the uh, uh, ribs, and uh, I kept kicking them, and they let me go, and I had to go to the hospital to get, get them cleaned up. Get shot, yeah. But uh, that, I'll never forget that. You had, you, had, you had fear of the Rottweiler and that, or the pit bull. But that's actually, if you think of it that way, it's just not that God is going to attack you and bite you, but rather that the fear of the Lord means that he is your, your, fo he is your first focus. And it's so easy to forget that. We all do. We all get distracted by a million different things, right? We all do it. That's why God says, look, if you keep me in the front spot, I'll, I'll guide you. And, my, and his word, of course, is the primary way in which God communicates with us. And that is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's where you begin. It's your premise. Anything else? You guys learned something today? Next week is our final E100 for the fall. Uh, we will maybe pick it up in the spring um, at some point, but we're getting ready to go into Advent, and we're going to try a different um, study potentially for Advent. So I hope you've enjoyed this. We're going to wrap up. Father, next week is, is the conclusion of Joshua. Is it just Joshua and Jericho? Yeah, that's a great story, uh, and a lot more profound, and a lot more, a lot more thought-provoking than you might think. Anyhow, I hope you all are enjoying this, and um, by the way, we are halfway through the Old Testament today, so, you know, take us another, ten more years to go, that's right. It took us, a, it took us a year to get halfway through, so take us another year to get the other way through, yeah. What is the text for next week? Do you know? Uh, um, it's, on the, uh, it's on the sheet right there. He'll, he'll read it. So basically, yeah, Joshua 5 and 6. So, All right, let's close in prayer. Uh, shall we, uh, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Joshua, who gives us the example of a right ordering of who he is and who you are. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness, for his leadership, for his obedience. 
for his courage. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who bears the same name and perfects all those qualities in our place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.